You're listening to Full Metal Podcast, a hard defense podcast brought to you by the defense team at the Center for a New American Security. Hi, this is Jerry Hendricks. I'm Susanna Bloom. I'm Adam Ruth. And I'm Lauren Fish. And this is a Full Metal Podcast this week. This week we're going to have a spirited discussion about the announcement of uh, President Trump's summit with North Korea to talk about uh, nuclear disarmament and the Korean Peninsula and world peace. We're also going to visit with Indiana Representative Jim Banks of the 3rd District and talk about the, 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 the movement towards the National Defense Authorization Act and what goes into that. Uh, but first... How about how about the president and this whole movement towards world peace, uh, Susanna? What what do you think of this this initiative? I don't know what to think, Jerry. I mean, I I will grudgingly admit that there may be something to this idea of maximum pressure. You mean strategic ambiguity as a strategic, uh, you know. It's right? only strategic ambiguity if you're doing it on purpose. Well, I think it's pretty purposeful. Was well, the strategic point, right? pace also on purpose? <laughs> right. Oh, God. Um, you know, again, I will grudgingly admit that there may have been something to this whole maximum pressure idea. I think it's been prosecuted in an extremely terrifying you know, irresponsible way. Um, but turning up the pressure on the North Koreans, particularly by involving the Chinese, I think I think in the end was smart. What is happening now, I don't even know. And I'm not actually super sure anyone else in the executive branch does either. So I think, I think that's uh, to some degree fair. I also would ask, though, um, what... So I guess the downsides that I understand is that we're basically giving Kim Jong-un the ability to go back to his people and say, look, I got... I got to meet with Donald Trump. I'm on the same level as him, and that came from nukes. So how does that how does that narrative translate into disarmament? Yeah, it's a, it solidifies his position as you know on the world stage. No sitting president has even had a phone call with the leader of North Korea d- during their presidency. So it really does elevate their status as a as a country. The the issue though is the only reason that this event's going to occur is that the agenda is the first and last denuclearization of the peninsula. So he can't go to his people and say, the only reason I'm here is nukes, and by the way, I have to give up the nukes in order to have the meeting. Jerry, I don't think that's right at all. I mean, the reason that he's there, I think Adam is correct. He's there because he has this bargaining chip of the nuclear weapons, or this like pseudo-bargaining chip that actually has a string attached to it of like, well, maybe we could talk about this, but the answer is going to be no. I mean, you know, and if the the reciprocal ask is that the United States denuclearize, because fair is fair, then like... What the heck are we doing? Yeah, I'm really not sure where the denuclearization comments coming from. I cannot see them really denuclearizing. Maybe they freeze their program for a more permanent period, but you definitely see Kim Jong-un playing his hand well right now with the development, the advancement of the program in the last year, two, three years has gone a long way. All we have is the information that was presented and very recently, which came from the South Korean representative who said that the purpose of the meeting is to denuclearize and that the North had accepted that as the premise of the meeting. And so the the idea that it's being offered and taken back. There's also no requirement for the United States, you know, writ large, to denuclearize. We already removed our, our weapons from the South Korean, um, uh, from South Korea. So the fact is, is they're coming to see us. They're offering to do denuclearize in exchange for the talks. That's it. That's all we know. I think I think it's fair to to analyze this from from the perspective of you know what's been presented and as Jay just mentioned that coming to the table with talks of denuclearization in mind. However, I don't think the bait and switch is out of question for North Korea. But at the end of the day, like what other options do we have right now? This this meeting, if it happens, which it still may not even happen, 
is in many ways somewhat of a productive step. Well, I mean, I'll tell you what the other options are, right? I mean, generally, if you're going to go into this kind of a talk, you would want to be very well coordinated and aligned with your treaty ally, who's another party to this discussion. I think what we've seen is a gap, gulf opening up between the Trump administration and the new administration in South Korea, right? I'm not at all convinced that we're on the same page with them. But they were, you the, would ones, also, Jerry, they were the ones who made the announcement. But Jerry, you would also, at a bare, bare minimum, hope that you would go in with some kind of unified cabinet position internal to this current administration. And all reports indicate that both the Departments of State and Defense were caught totally off guard. So in, in fairness, when the Clinton administration did this in 2000, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, it blew up in their face. And it was a huge, huge problem for the administration. And they have been known to have, a, have had a horrible position on North Korea. So, in all fairness, going in and suggesting that you have to have a unified position certainly makes sense uh, when you plan it that way, but it still doesn't mean it's going to shake out to be a productive outcome. Well, I mean... No, but it's probably a precondition, right? No, don't don't mistake what this is really all about because we, we of course we're talking about denuclearization. Why is North Korea interested in this? Because the sanctions regime that we're that they're under right now is really hurting. They're they're losing capital. They don't have much currency to run on. Their elites are being impacted. They're trying to figure out a way to get fresh flow of cash in. And and I, I have to push back. The South Koreans were the ones who came to the White House, consulted with the president, and then their representative made the announcement last night. So this is not the U.S. making the announcement. This was yeah, South but, Korea making the announcement. But there has been, in months prior to that, the South Koreans and the U.S. were not seeming to be on the same page prior to the Olympics. And you want you want to be with a treaty ally on the same page. And so I think that, that that it's fair to say that. I think also with the shift in South Korean leadership in the last year or 18 months, you have a party that really wants peace on the peninsula and might be willing to say stuff to get the U.S. to into the conversation under potentially false pretenses. I mean, I'm not trying to say that of an ally, but I'm just saying there's a lot of angles here that we have to consider, and we do want to be in lockstep. I'm in agreement with Susanna on that. I mean, I think we got to take a step back and like look at the interests of the different parties to this arrangement, right? Mm -hmm. um, so the North Korean regimes, several consecutive regimes, have opined or exhibited the belief that nuclear weapons are their key to, to regime survival. It means other people have to take them seriously. It means you can't just roll over them when you, you know, eventually decide that reunification is a good idea. On the question of reunification, you know, it's unclear to me whether any, any of the parties in this system think that that's a good goal or an achievable goal. The Chinese certainly don't want to see a unified Korean peninsula with U.S. forces right up along their border. Uh, the the South Koreans, I think there are parts of the South Korean population or leadership who look at the problem set and, and see that, um, you know, it, unifying is going to be an unbelievably costly venture. I mean, if you look what it took to achieve German reunification in a, in a situation where the East is still lagging far behind the West, I mean, this is an orders of magnitude more difficult challenge. Um, and so I just I wonder how clear-eyed the president is about who is interested in achieving what ends as a result of this process. I think that's fair. Uh, with the last couple minutes here, uh, uh, Susanna, Jerry, and Laura, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on what a good outcome of this meeting should have happened looks like, and briefly. 
Well, um, I would say, I guess a good outcome is that the U.S. is clear-eyed about its interests. I think if the president, um, the president needs to think through all of the various actors here, what their end states might be and how those might differ from the U.S. And also, in, in terms of anything that he might be asked to give up on the U.S. side, you know, we certainly could see a case where we have more like uh, the past, just given more aid, given more energy, et cetera. But if it, we have other allies and um, other adversaries who are also nuclear powers, so this is kind of a system that you need to consider. Um, I'll just also say that I think that Kim Jong-un has played his hand very well. Most of the nuclear tests have been during his tenure, and a lot of the success in the last year or so has been under his, you know, he's an energetic young man trying to be the leader, and so I think he's doing that, and he, we don't want to give him too much on the world stage. So if I'm handicapping this, and I'll just make it quick, there's a better than 50% chance that the North Koreans call off the meeting before it happens as a means of, of bargaining and trying to get some additional cash and saying, we'll come if you give us more cash. There's a 25% chance if the meeting does occur that, that Trump and Tillerson get up uh, a la Reagan and Schultz at Reykjavik and walk out. And the only success on this defined is that North Korea agrees to denuclearize. If they don't, then then the effort will be uh, will be will viewed as a failure. Well, I do wonder what that looks like, Jerry. I mean, are you talking about an agreement similar to Jikpoa? I mean, the the nuclear agreement with Iran. Um, no, I don't think that it looks like that because I think this would be a good agreement and something that would be worthy of a, of a Nobel Prize, uh, much as President Obama received in his first year oh, in office. Boy. <laughs> I mean, but I'm, but I'm seriously wondering, I mean, if, you know, we're going to have to give something in order to get the North Koreans to denuclearize, just like we did with the Iranians to halt their nuclear program. You know, I hear from the right every day what a crappy agreement they think that agreement was. I don't know what a better one looks like. No, that makes sense. I don't. I don't know what a good outcome is. I. I, I think uh, I'm more in line with Jerry here. I think if the if we're going in to discuss denuclearization, then then to come out uh, without a plan to do that is is a waste of time. But what are we prepared to give up in order to get that? All right. Well, that's been a spirited conversation, and um, and uh, please stay tuned for uh, Representative Jim Banks talking about the National Defense Authorization Act. All right, this week we're here with Congressman Jim Banks of Indiana's 3rd Congressional District. Congressman Banks is a, a veteran, a member of the Reserves, and a, also a member on the House Armed Services Committee. And so, Congressman Banks, I'd like to start out sort of your perspective as, uh, as a relatively new legislature uh, here in, in Washington, D.C. You tell us a little bit about your interactions with the National Defense Authorization Act and how that comes together and how you set your priorities. Well, Jerry, first of all, great to be with you. Um, as someone who's followed your work uh, for the last several months, I appreciate the, all of the inputs that you provided into the larger national security conversation. As a fellow Navy guy, it's great um, uh, to be with you as well to talk about where we're headed because we know where we've been and we know that we have a long ways to go to restore military readiness, get our military back on, on its feet to prepare for the threats that we face, not just today, but in the future. So you brought up the NDAA um, as a new kid on the block, a freshman member of Congress. It was the, the highlight of my um, uh, of my service so far to be appointed to the House Armed Services Committee. I, I only dreamed about that when I was a candidate, that I might, might earn a seat on, on HASC on the Armed Services Committee and was, was successful in my pursuit. I'm the first member from the 3rd District of Indiana to serve on that committee because we don't have an active duty a base in the district, and usually members of the of the committee are those who come from districts that represent a, a large active duty component 
who uh, who find their way on the committee. So I'm I'm new to Congress. I'm new to the committee, and I'm new to this animal called the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. Last year we passed uh, the NDAA for fiscal year uh, 18. We're already well on our way in preparations for FY19 NDAA. I didn't know how this worked. Um, I didn't know that the Armed Services Committee, when I asked to be on it, only passed one bill every year. And uh, everything that we do throughout the year gears up for that one single day where we go through and vote on um, many hours of amendments and inputs uh, into the NDAA. But all of the work started several months ago for FY19's NDAA. And our office, um, over the past several weeks, has been completing the, the process of our inputs. We have several dozen inputs that we've requested to be um, included in this upcoming NDAA. We can we can talk about that a little bit, but those requests range from priorities for industry located in my district in Northeast Indiana, uh, bases and industries throughout the entire state of Indiana, and then some other broad interests that I have in the NDAA as well that I'm hopeful to advocate for that, that are important to me. Well, how do you set those priorities? I mean, you, you talk about that you're a, a district really without a military base. I know that you have an Air National Guard unit uh, that's there at Fort Wayne. You have a number of industries that contribute, and also the entire region uh, contributes in shipbuilding uh, to what's going on up in Marinette, Wisconsin. Uh, but the, the, the fact is, is how do you sort of set the priority on what you inputted into the NDAA process? Well, I start by looking at what's important to my district. So in in the 3rd District of Indiana, it's probably a great case study for what you found in congressional districts all over the country. Because before the Budget Control Act, we had um, roughly, by some estimates, 50% more defense-related jobs in my district than what we have today. So we've seen a sharp decline in the defense industry. Right, right now, we have several uh, very important defense um, prime businesses and then a lot of other suppliers to the com to those companies as well ranging from BAE BAE to Raytheon to Harris Corporation um, we have Ultra Electronics that makes a, a, a large number of sauna buoys um, right in my hometown in Columbia City Indiana so when we look at the NDA we look at what are the what are the programs that authorize the funds that that are related to the programs that employ uh, tens of thousands of Hoosiers in my district. So when it comes to Harris Corporation, they do weather satellites in my district, and um, we need a lot more money to pay for um, weather satellites in the CENTCOM region uh, that are related to all of the efforts that are going on there. So that's a that's an important priority. I already mentioned the sauna buoys. Um, both um, Raytheon and, and BAE are on the leading edge of a lot of other sophisticated technologies. That's just in my district. But mm -hmm. then when you look around the state of Indiana, we have uh, we may, we um, build the F-35 engines at um, Rolls-Royce in Indianapolis. We make BRE, I'm sorry, MREs um, and down in Evansville. Almost every MRE has Evansville, Indiana um, stamped on the, on the outside of the package. So um, industry is very, very important. And as you know, if, if we have um, a vigorous uh, in, uh, uh, industrial pipeline, that's, that's important to make it, the military depends on our industry partners to um, prepare for the future, um, uh, begin thinking about and, and uh, brainstorming new technologies. All of that's important. So the, the priorities of employing Hoosiers and, and uh, supporting what they do is important. But also we have 
um, Grissom Air Force Base. We have Crane Naval Surface Warfare Center, which is really, really important. Not very many people in uniform there, but but five or six thousand jobs at Crane, and they're on the on the leading edge of a lot of a lot of important things that are going on. Much of it uh, on the classified side. Uh, we have Atterbury and Muscatatuck on the Indiana National Guard side. Uh, Muscatatuck, by the way, is a urban warfare training center that um, that a lot of our troops are are trained at uh, before they deploy abroad. So my my priorities are 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 um, getting into the NDAA funding and support for what's important to Indiana. As a, you, you occupy sort of a unique uh, situation, although not as unique as it, it once was as, a, as an officer in the reserves who's been actively serving overseas in some of the nation's wars, you have that perspective of kind of looking up from the bottom of the hourglass, but also now looking down as a policymaker. How do you feel about uh, military readiness right now and sort of the challenge that we're facing with that, both for the active force as well as from your perspective as a member of the reserve community? Well, I, uh, as the most recently deployed member of Congress, just serving in Afghanistan right before I got elected to Congress, the, a lot of lessons that I learned um, along the way. And and what what's most troubling, though, is seeing the depletion of our readiness, the the uh, the decline of of our of our military among all the branches, um, the lack of technology supplied to American troops while at, while serving in Afghanistan on the foreign military sales side, seeing us turn over sophisticated equipment to the Afghans, but not having the same type of equipment provided to our American troops or um, or, or to to those who were serving there at the time. I mean, those are troubling lessons that now on the policymaking side, I I have a role and being able to play when it comes to NDAA of equipping our troops with the most sophisticated technologies to be able to, to be able to go out and do their job. But as you know, as we're looking at priorities in, um, in, in Afghanistan, Iraq, which are the efforts that, we've, that have been ongoing since 2001 or before, um, but now looking at rebuilding the, the more traditional aspects of our military from, from building up in this NDAA, beginning to set the stage to get to that 355 ship Navy by the 2050s to um, re- rebuilding the the army and you know giving the army what it needs to go out and attract more more troops um, personnel readiness all of that is a big part of what goes into the NDAA um, and the the increase in funding in the NDAA is what's what's most important that allows us to get there at, at a baseline of 700 billion for FY 2018 um, FY. 2019, looking at 716 billion or beyond, um, that funding increase is what's necessary to get our military back on its feet. Let me ask you a larger sort of uh, geostrategic question. It's one that was highlighted within the national security strategy as well as the national defense strategy, and that that goes to this balance that we're trying to to meet between capabilities or the idea of investing in high-end technology as a solution and also building capacity, growing the size of the Navy, growing the size of the Air Force, growing the size of the Army. Uh, as a member who sits in the committee that really puts the, the basic building blocks into this, do you think that we're heading towards the right balance or have we overemphasized certain things uh, or, and, you know, to the detriment of others? Well, I don't think there's any question that we've, we've um, spent so much investment and time, maybe necessarily so, on our ongoing efforts in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, to the detriment of building up the, um, uh, the really really the more traditional cores of our military, which is what would be necessary if if we found ourselves in a conflict with North Korea, China, Russia, Iran. I mean, th- those would be more traditional 
um, conflicts than what we've uh, experienced in Iraq and Afghanistan. So um, are we on the right track? I, I think this administration is, uh, especially under the leadership of General Mattis, has articulated a vision that we haven't um, that we haven't heard, especially in the last um, two administrations that can ho hopefully help us get there by prioritizing that type of thinking and the recent national defense strategy, national, national security strategies, I think lay the ground, groundwork for us to get there. But that, that is what the NDAA is all about. And to get back to that uh, base funding amount of over exceeding $700 billion gets us on the right track to get there. And, and that's the job of Congress. And and I, th I think we're, we've gotten to a point where Congress gets that and is doing their job at restoring funding for the military. All right, last question. Is there any particular aspect of legislation that you're hoping to introduce uh, that, uh, that will cover down on some of these issues that you've highlighted, areas that you want to dig in on that are going to be a priority with you in your office? Well, as a, as a new member of Congress, on the largest committee in Congress, I mean, there are 62 members of the House Armed Services Committee, and I'm, on, I'm, in, I'm literally in the, Jerry, in the front row. So I get a front row seat every time Secretary Mattis or um, someone, someone comes and testifies before the committee, including experts from your organization as well. Um, I, it, it's, as a new member of Congress, you've got to go out and hunt for those, those interests that are, that are important to you. So for me, again, it's those priorities that are important to Indiana, but it's also uh, the, the future of, of Efforts in Afghanistan is a is a interest that's important to me as someone who served there. Um, we're working on language in the NDAA that would reform the um, the, the security assistance for military sales process. That that because I was a foreign military sales officer, it gives me a, some background. So sort of searching for those areas where I can have the biggest impact, where I have some perspective or a background, is is uh, is an important part of the process of being a, a, a member of Congress and a policymaker. So a lot of other areas from um, the future of the, the non-Luger uh, security uh, threat reduction program, um, that, that's an area that we've taken an interest in our office because of our respect for Senator Luger, what he and Senator Nunn did in post-Cold War to um, go out and, and uh, hunt for nuclear weapons that have fallen into the wrong hands in the, in the post-Cold War era. Look at what that program should be doing 25 years later that maybe wasn't thought about 25 years ago when they passed that. Um, other issues related to um, uh, uh, autonomous capabilities. I mean, I've been I've been working on this with with your organization, looking at whether these are updates in the um, uh, 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 any any type of ethical agreements that we have with other nations, and, and making sure that autonomous capabilities don't get into the wrong hands as well. So, there's a, that gives you a flavor of what we're working on. Well, it's been a great pleasure talking with you today, and we hope to do so again. And again, this is Congressman uh, Jim Banks, Indiana 3rd District, with, with myself, Jerry Hendricks, of the Center for a New American Security.